In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. God willing, today we're going to continue studying in the book of Exodus, chapter 19. Um, last time we finished chapter 18, and halfway through chapter 19. Um, does anyone remember the main points that we um, spoke about last time? What would just happen to the peace people of Israel? They went somewhere important. The mountain. Which mountain is that? Hmm? Sinai, right? Mount Sinai, which was called the mountain of God. This is the mountain where Moses is going to do what? Hmm? Speak to God and he's going to receive something from God. The Ten Commandments, okay? Which, God willing, we're going to speak about today. Um, also, another major event that we talked about last time was um, Moses, when he was trying to manage and lead all of the people of Israel, which were numbered in the millions, um, and when anyone had any kind of problem or dispute, they would come to him for guidance uh, so that he would judge between the people and to give them advice and guidance and how he was burning himself out. And so he listened to the advice of his father-in-law, Jethro, who told him that he should distribute and delegate this responsibility to um, a lot of people. And so this, is, this was the other kind of major event that we spoke about last time. So I'm just going to read the first few verses of chapter 19 to recount what it is that we had discussed last time. And then we will continue the second half of chapter 19 and through chapter 20, um, God willing. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. In the third month after the children of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on the same day they came to the wilderness of Sinai. For they had departed from Rephidim and had come to the wilderness of Sinai and camped in the wilderness, so Israel camped there before the mountain. And Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the children of Israel, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought uh, brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine. Remember, we spoke about last time about how when God makes a covenant, there is um, a, par a, the, a part of the covenant has to do with a promise that God is going to give and make to the people, but there is also um, something that we have to respond with. So here, God's promise to them is that they would become a special treasure to him, like a special people to him, but they, in order for God to fulfill this promise, would have to obey his voice and keep his covenant. Okay, so that was the that was the the contract between them. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. So he's telling Moses to go and tell this to the people. So Moses came and called for the elders of the people and laid before them all these words which the Lord commanded him. Then all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. So Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. So the people, when they heard this, God making this offer, they said, Yes, we are going to listen and follow all of the words that God has said. We spoke last time about how you know, maybe the people didn't really understand themselves very well. They felt like, yes, they're going to follow the commandment of God, but so far they have shown time and again that they are not following the commandment of God. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I come to you in the thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and believe you forever. So Moses told the words of the people to the Lord. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their clothes. And let them be ready for the third day, for on the third day the Lord will come down upon Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Okay, so God is telling the people to get ready so that he can appear to them. And I believe this is where we left off last time. You shall set bounds for the people all around, saying, Take heed to yourselves that you do not go up to the mountain or touch its base. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. Not a hand shall touch him. But he shall surely be stoned or shot with an arrow, whether man or beast, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds long, they shall come near the mountain. Um, one thing that I do want to emphasize here has to do with um, the spiritual versus the physical. Sometimes we, um, because we are always so much focusing on the spiritual things, and we talk about how the spiritual things are important, um, 
we 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 imagine that nothing physical even matters right nothing physical matters because we say well all that matters is um my spiritual connection to god my relationship with god and nothing else matters okay um but god shows us time and time again in the scripture that he honors certain physical things physical things matter to him right for instance later on in the book of exodus when god is going to give commandments to moses of how to build a tabernacle the tabernacle is built meticulously with attention to detail about every material and every dimension right the physical things they matter to god here this physical mountain it mattered to god god said this mountain is holy don't even touch the mountain and if you touch the mountain you will die right we believe that there are certain things that are holy like the cross for instance the cross is holy that there is power in the cross we believe that the church is a holy place we have um, holy oil that we anoint ourselves with right these are physical things right and sometimes and some people might look at these things and say well what's what does it matter the holy oil and the holy place and the holy mountain why is someone going to be you know stoned and killed because they touched the mountain right um but god wants to emphasize to us that god imbues holiness to everything he touches because we are not just spiritual beings we are spiritual and physical right we are both and this is why the sacraments are the way that they are right if if we were purely spiritual beings right the sacraments you know you think about like the sacraments like like baptism right the the true efficacy of the sacrament is the the dying and being resurrected with the lord right but it happens through what it happens through water something physical something we can identify with we can see we can touch we can know that the sacrament is happening because of the physical manifestations of the sacrament right communion i mean couldn't god have given us his body and blood in some mystical way that doesn't even require like bread and wine but he gave it to us in a form that we can see and taste and touch and smell to make it clear for us that it's actually happening right it's not just uh, it's, it's not just something in our mind you know sometimes it, it kind of reminds me of certain uh, christian denominations they always predict the end of the world and they say that the end of the world is going to happen at such and such date and time okay and then when that date comes and it doesn't happen what is the response well he, well christ came spiritually it was a spiritual coming what does that even mean you know like you said it was the end of the world right so the, 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 the world didn't end right how is it a spiritual coming so the the physical things matter we shouldn't discount the physical actually this was a heresy in the early church there was a group of heretics called the gnostics um coming from the word gnosis it's a greek word that means knowledge and they believed that they had like a special knowledge and understanding of god that no one else had and one of their beliefs was that the physical things were evil that they they completely discarded anything physical they were even against the idea of marriage um as being evil like anything physical anything physical is evil the only thing that matters is the spiritual so as orthodox we we completely reject this we believe that god gives physical things um spiritual significance right this is why we have a cross this is why we make the sign of the cross and we say making the sign of the cross has an effect it, it it's a physical action it's not just a prayer it's not just a you know something that i that i that i that i pray to god and god does something spiritual or changes something spiritual just physical action that's doing that or a certain place like when god says the church right to to to, to the church is very important right in christianity and the church is a place yes the church is the congregation and all the people make up the church but the church is also a place right where we all come and gather and it is a holy place right because god is present in it does that mean that god is not present anywhere else no he is right but there is special significance to the presence of god in the church okay so keep this in mind and and because it's very important throughout the old testament because we see this all throughout the old testament right is the significance of the physical things that god and the physical boundaries that god gives to the people because of the spiritual significance of those things like for instance there was a time where um the people were uh were were transporting the ark of the covenant which they shouldn't have been because they were transporting it in the wrong way um but they were transporting it on an, on a on a cart and it came to fall over and so a man 
who was not lawfully allowed to touch the Ark of the Covenant, he touched it to keep it from falling over, and God struck him dead, right? From a, from a purely spiritual perspective, you can look at that and say, well, you know, what's the big deal? You know, what, what, hap what, what happened because he touched the Ark of the Covenant? You know, nothing bad happened because he touched the Ark of the Covenant, right? But why did God even place those rules? It's because he consecrated the Ark of the Covenant. It was so special that it could only be handled a certain way, could only be handled by certain people. And so anyone who transgressed that, commanded, ca that commandment, you know, experienced the consequence of that, right? That's a physical thing and a physical rule. The physical things matter to God, right? The way that the tabernacle was built mattered to God. So here when, when God is placing this boundary, and these rules about the mountain. He's making it, he's, it's very serious, right? This is the holy mountain consecrated to God. God is going to appear on this mountain. God is going to deliver the Ten Commandments to this mountain. And the only person, right, who can go up this mountain is Moses because he was the one selected by God for this task so that we don't treat that this mountain is just like anywhere, like it's just any random place, right? Just like we don't treat the church like it's just any random building. Right? It has a special significance. That's why, for instance, we have a dress code in the church because we want to honor the place. Does God care about shorts or pants? He doesn't care about pants or, or cloth or, you know, to the eyes of God, like people could be naked. He doesn't care if people are dressed or not dressed. Right? But the, there, is, there, is a res there is a respect to be given, right, to this place. There is a respect to be given to this place, which is why there is a way that we behave, there's a way that we speak, there's a way that we dress. Right? To, 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 to represent and to signify the holiness that is found here. Okay? So the physical things matter. Right? It's not that um, there is no physical rules. Right? There are, there are plenty of rules that are, that are physical. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and sanctifies the people and they washed their clothes. And he said to the people, be ready for the third day uh, do not come near your wives, okay? So um, they had to be physically clean. They had to wash their clothes. They had to even be purified like, a, like it was like a fast. It was a fast. They, 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 would, they would be celibate. They would not engage in any kind of sexual activity. Again, in preparation, right? It doesn't mean that sexual activity is wrong, all right? It means that it is a fast to prepare ourselves. Just like before we come and we take communion, we fast, right? Not because eating food is sinful, because we are preparing ourselves to be 100% focused on what is about to come and we are getting ready for it. And we take it seriously. We don't, we don't just feel like, you know what, I can have breakfast in the morning and then I come in and take communion. It diminishes the importance of it. The more I prepare for something, the more significant it is, right? Like think about people who like study for years and years to like to take the MCAT exam, like for medical school or something. You prepare for so much, it, 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 the significance of that moment is so important because of all of the effort that I put to get there, right? So, so here also, um, God had told the people, prepare yourselves because when I appear on the mountain and speak to you, it's not like a regular day. It's a special thing that is going to happen. Actually, um, the church also commands um, during times of fasting, um, that people refrain from the sexual relationship, right? Um, in practice, um, it's, not, it's not practiced so much because there are so many fasting days in the year, and so it is difficult for people to do. And actually, St. Paul said that it's something that should be with consent between the two people. But he said it's something that should happen, right? So if there is um, a period of time when the couple decides that they're going to abstain, um, uh, for for a few days or for however long it is with agreement from each other for the purpose of like um, drawing deeper in their relationship with God not to be distracted by anything else um, this is this is encouraged right um, St. Gregory, uh, Gregory of Nyssa he says the following he says if you long for God to manifest himself to you why do you not hear Moses when he commands the people to be pure from the stains of marriage that they may take in the vision of God as the people of the old days received the word of God engraved on the two tablets by refraining from marital relationships and cleansing their bodies, the church is instructing its children to do the same on the eve before they approach the divine word. It has also established a beautiful rite for the priests to cleanse their hands before receiving the lamb, in which the priest checks the purity of his own soul and his inner readiness for the service. Okay, 
So we take this as like a form of preparation. Then it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunderings and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain. And the sound of the trumpet was very loud so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet with God and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Sinai was completely in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. Its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked greatly. And when the blast of the trumpet sounded long and became louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him by voice. Okay? Um, if you look at, um, like, the manifestation of God, like how God manifests himself, okay? Um, in the Old Testament, whenever God would appear or manifest himself or speak to the people, it was like in a, in, a, in a kind of frightening way. See, the people in the next chapter, in chapter 20, they, they, it says this, Then they said to Moses, You speak with us and we will hear, but let not God speak with us lest we die. Like they're afraid from, from the voice of God. They're afraid of when God appears to them because God is full of, you know, he's, he's otherworldly, he's divine. Like when he manifests himself and he appears, he doesn't appear in a, in a kind of way that people are expecting or understand of or experience before. And so whenever the people hear the voice of God, they are afraid, okay? Um, but in the New Testament, okay, it's different, right? Um, Father Tadros Molote, he says this. He says, in the old days, he, God, dealt with humanity as though with little children who became afraid as they hear the terrifying voice. Notwithstanding, in the New Testament, he speaks to us as mature children seeking our love and friendship. If you, th how is it that, that God manifested himself in the New Testament? In the form of the Lord Jesus Christ who was incarnate, became man as us, and he spoke with us with, with gentleness. Right? He spoke to us. No one would see the Lord Christ and be afraid of him. You know, no one would see him and feel like, oh, I can't approach and talk to him. It was actually the opposite. They would feel like he's very approachable, right? that he can speak with him. But how is it that the Lord appeared in the Old Testament, right? It was very different. The people's response to God when they saw him is we don't even want God to talk to us because we're so afraid of what he's going to say to us or the way he manifests himself. Um, but let Moses speak to us. Moses can speak to God, and then Moses tells us what it is that God said as opposed to us speaking with God um, directly. But very different experience that we have now um, in the New Testament. And one of the reasons of the incarnation was that God is so seeking a relationship with us so that we could be in his presence and not be trembling and frightened and afraid, right? That we could be with him and see him um, as, as loving as one of us. Then the Lord came down upon Mount Sinai on the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to gaze at the Lord, and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. But Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to the Mount Sinai, for you warned us, saying, Set bounds around the mountain and consecrate it. Then the Lord said to him, Away, get down, and then come up, you and Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So God is wanting to be super, super clear to the people. Do not come up the mountain. Do not touch the mountain, lest they perish. So Moses went down to the people and spoke to them. Remember, Moses is going to stay how long on the mountain? Forty days. Right? It's not just a few hours. It's not just a day or two. So he wanted the people to fully realize that, okay, even though I'm going to be gone for a long time, don't try to come after me. Don't seek after me. Don't come up the mountain, right? So he's making it very, very, very clear to them, okay? Chapter 20. Chapter 20 is one of the most famous uh, chapters in the Bible. So if you remember this, Exodus chapter 20, this is the chapter where the, the, the Moses received the Ten Commandments from God, okay? How many commandments are there? Ten, but not everybody counts them the same. We know that there are ten because God said that there are ten, okay? But not everybody counts them the same. So here are some, some differences between how different people count them, okay? The Jews 
okay, they consider the inter what we call the introduction to the, the Ten Commandments, where, where God says, I am the Lord your God, they consider that to be the first commandment. Okay, I am the Lord your God. Like it is, it is, a, it is, like explicitly defining the identity of God at the beginning of the Ten Commandments. That this is the command. Okay, this is the command. Um, uh, and then they s they combine what we call the first and second. We they call it the second. So you shall have no other gods before me, and you shall not make unto thee any graven image. Those we consider as two separate commandments. We are the middle column, the one that's LXX, which means Septuagint. That's the Orthodox um, uh, understanding of the Ten Commandments. So what we call first and second commandments, they combine it into second commandment. Okay, all the rest are the same. the The Catholic Church is different. So the Catholic Church, they also combine those first two commandments: "You shall have no other gods before me, and you shall not make any graven image." But if you look at the very end, when the, the, the what we consider the tenth commandment, which has to do everything with regarding covetousness, um, you, you should not cover covet your neighbor's house. You should not covet your neighbor's wife or his slaves, animals, or anything of your neighbor. Okay, they separate the coveting of the neighbor's wife as a separate commandment from all the other commandments not to covet. So they consider, do not covet your neighbor's wife as the ninth commandment. And do not covet anything else as the tenth commandment. Whereas in our church, we consider all everything related to the coveting is all the tenth commandment combined. Okay, so it's just interesting to see that even as because God did not say number one, number two, number three. He just he said here are the commandments, and so different people interpreted them differently. Okay, um, so we know that the ten commandments they were written on two tablets of stone. We actually also know that Moses, and we'll see that later on, he destroyed the first sets of the tablets, and God had to make new tablets. Okay, um, the co the commandments are also called the Decalogue, De Deca meaning ten, um, also called the words of the covenant, the two tablets of the covenant, the covenant. All these are different um, words or phrases that are used to describe the ten commandments. Also, if you look at the first four commandments. Okay, and the last six commandments, there's a there's a there's a there's a different quality about them. The first four have a certain quality, and the last six have a, a different quality. What what do you think is the difference between the first four and the last six? Yeah. Okay, very good, Sephra. I think you want to say something. Same thing. Okay. Um, so the first four commandments are all regulating our relationship with God. And the last six commandments are all regulating our relationship with each other, right? The first, the first four are, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make any graven image. You shall not take the Lord's name in vain. Remember uh, the Sabbath day and keep it holy, right? Those four things are, based, are, are about our relationship with God. The last six, honor your father and mother. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not covet. All of those have to do with our relationship with um, other people. What is the purpose of the Ten Commandments? What is the purpose of the Ten Commandments? Yeah. I think I think it's to let people know like what God wants from them and for them to discover that they can't reach that and that they need a savior to help them. Very good. Relationship with God. Okay. So those are two very important purposes. The first one is, how are the people going to know what God expects of them unless God tells them? And now keep in mind that it is not that the people were not aware that a lot of these things that God is saying here were important at, from before. Right? It is, it is not that they didn't understand that murder was wrong from the beginning. Actually, who was the first murderer? Cain. And it was very clear at the time that God expected him to know that murder was evil, right? So it's not like Cain came, so I didn't know, you know, murder was bad, you know? So the, uh, the, the idea here is not that God is, is, is necessarily coming up with a new set of commandments and are like, hey, by the way, you know, this is it. But he is formalizing them and making it very clear and known that these are the commandments that God expects of everyone, 
Okay? So, number one, God explains to the people, makes it known to the people what his expectations are. And in the book of Exodus, there's going to be a whole, a whole lot more commands. I mean, the Ten Commandments are like the, 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 the most, uh, you know, kind of significant um, that we think to when we think of the law. But the law actually has many, many, many more um, rules um, that, that the Lord is also going to reveal to the people. Okay? The other thing that Sandy said, okay, is it makes the people realize that they are unable to fulfill God's desire, right? Which seems kind of strange. In, in, um, in Romans 5, verse 20, it says, The law entered that the offense might abound. Which sounds kind of strange. Like, what do you mean the law entered that the offense might abound? He's not saying here that God wants people to be to offend, that God wants people to sin, that God wants people to break the law. No, but it is through the law that we realized our own offense. You know, it is through the law that I realized my own weakness. Um, king Josiah was a very righteous king, and the kings before him were wicked. And so in the reign of the kings before him, um, all of Israel stopped worshiping God. They stopped reading the law. They stopped practicing everything, right? So for several generations, people grew up without any knowledge of the law, any knowledge of what God wanted for them. And King Josiah, after he became king, they were cleaning the temple, and they discovered the book of the law, which had been kind of like discarded, that nobody even was reading it. And so King Josiah said, let's read what's in the law. And when he saw the law, and he realized that they were not keeping any of the things that God had commanded, he tore his clothes in, in sadness that they were being an offense to God this whole time without even knowing or realizing it, right? Because they didn't know the law. So when we know the law, we realize how much we are breaking the law, which sounds maybe can sound kind of depressing, right? That, that, that is one of the reasons to know the law. Knowing the law, and, and what's interesting about that is that God knew that they would be unable to fulfill it. Right. Like we could say, you know, like let's say in our work. OK, we want to know the rules. Why? Because we want to follow the rules. We, we, we want to follow the rules. We want to make sure that we're doing the right thing. Maybe many of us in our work, the rules are such that they are attainable. Right. Like if I if I'm a responsible person, if I'm bright and aware of things, I can probably follow the rules and do what I'm supposed to do most of the time. OK. The, the rules here that God are saying are beyond our ability to do, right? They are beyond, that's why the law entered that the offense might abound. The moment that the law entered, the moment that the law became known, offense began to happen, right? And so the purpose of that offense, okay, is for us to realize how much we are in need of a physician. We are in need of a healer. We are in need of a savior. We are in need of someone to come and say, look at yourself. You are unable to follow the command of God. You are unable to follow. So I am coming to help you and to forgive you. So the purpose of the law was so that the people would realize that they are unable to have salvation through the law and they were in need of the Messiah. So when God began to plant okay, in their minds, and even from the Garden of Eden, to begin to plant in the minds of the people that they have no salvation except through the one who is to come. There is someone who is going to come at some point, and he's going to do something, and it is only through his, him and through his actions that you are going to be able to have salvation because you are not righteous. You are not going to be able to follow the law. And certainly from this point on for the next 40 years when we see the people wandering in the wilderness, they did not follow the law. They did not even practice the Passover, which God had told them and instituted for them on the first year when they were leaving Egypt and told them, you know, practice this every year. They were not doing that. They were not doing any of the things that God commanded them to do. They were constantly disobedient to God all the time. But that disobedience, okay, did not make them humble. They did not look toward a savior because eventually, of course, we know um, in the time of the New Testament that the Jews, seeing the Lord Jesus Christ, they didn't acknowledge or recognize him as the one who had been spoken about all this time and throughout all these prophecies that he is the one actually who's coming to save us from our sins. 
They were not looking for that in him, right? They didn't see that they needed him for that or that they had this problem. So even though God gave them many messages and many prophets, okay, but they did not recognize their own weakness, but actually the Pharisees were justifying themselves constantly, right? They believed themselves to be righteous. They were not in need of any salvation. They believed that their salvation was through the practice of the law. And they convinced themselves that they were actually practicing the law, right? And that's when the Lord spoke about and St. Paul spoke about the difference between the letter of the law and the spirit of the law, right? The Pharisees focused so much on keeping the literal letter of everything without understanding what even was the purpose of this law. Like you might be keeping the letter of the law, but breaking the intention of the law, right? What was the law intended for? You know, we as human beings, we found loopholes for everything, Um Another purpose of the law was that it was supposed to bring joy. It was supposed to bring joy to the people. In Romans 7.22, St. Paul says, For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. Okay? If I am able to follow what is asked of me, then I feel joyful because I feel like I'm, I'm on the right track, I'm doing the right thing. You know, any one of us, when we're put in a situation, whether at work or church or wherever, and there are certain requirements, and we are able to fulfill those requirements, we feel good. We feel like I'm, I'm, I'm following the, the rules that I'm, I'm succeeding and I'm able to do, right? So the revelation of the law to us was supposed to make us feel like now I know what to do so I can do it and I can feel fulfilled and satisfied in the knowledge that I am obeying the law. But actually, as we said, um, that's not what happened because we were not able to fulfill the law. The law also pointed to the New Testament. Okay, let me read this from the book of Jeremiah. This is Jeremiah chapter 31. Um, it says what? Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And this is the difference between the old covenant and the new covenant. The old covenant was written on these tablets of stone, right? They were, there were these external commands. And the law did not impart to the listener or to the reader any power to obey it. You know, it's like you just have a series of commands and, you know, good luck, you know, obeying these commands. Good, good luck doing these things, okay? The New Testament, here what Jeremiah is saying, right, and what, what God is saying is that I, I will put my law in their, in, their, in their minds and write it on their hearts, it's not written on these tablets of stone, but it's written on us. Like God implants within us an understanding of his ways, an understanding of his righteousness, a desire for his righteousness. And he will give us, through the work of the Holy Spirit, the ability to actually fulfill the law, right? To actually do what it is that God is asking us to do. So the old covenant was just a series of laws that we could not follow, and we did not have the power to obey them. The new covenant is looking at the old covenant with different eyes, right? And being filled with the Holy Spirit to actually be able to fulfill and to do what is it that God is asking us to do. So that's just very briefly um, some kind of commentary about the law. Yes. Um, regarding the, uh, that the law is like to show the people that they need a savior. Ironically, that sounds a lot like the like the same factors of uh, consumerism, where like they're showing the need of a product, <laughs> and like and then like just to sell it. Like you sh you show a product and then you you try to you try to convince people that they need that product. Yeah, I guess I guess you could think of it like that. And God spoke all these words. So now Moses is on the mountain. Okay, he spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. So he's going to begin the commandments now. This is the first. You, ha you shall have no other gods before me. Okay, the first commandment. Um, God warns the people against idol worship, okay, which would become a constant source of trouble for Israel. In 2 Corinthians 11, 
St. Paul is speaking um, on the mouth of God here. He says, For I am jealous for you with godly jealousy. For I have betrothed you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. Okay? For I am jealous for you with godly jealousy. St. Paul is saying this to the people. Okay? Why? Because God is calls, calls himself a jealous God. Jealous meaning what? Jealous meaning that he doesn't want to see us, who is his bride, fornicating with any other gods. Only him. Right? And and the other gods don't have to be like deities or you know false gods. It could be just anything in our life that is a source of distraction, anything that we pour our our our, our minds and our hearts into that take us away from God. Those things are idols for us. Those things are gods for us. So God is telling here the the, the people, I don't want you to place anything, any person, any activity, any thought, any desire, right above me. You shall have no other gods before me. And, and the God is the one that we follow. The God is the one that controls our, our time. That is the God. That is our God. What is it that I worship? Look at how you spend your time. That is what you worship, right? If, if, if I worship God as the first, right, and as the only, then I will spend most of my time in edifying things that allow me to draw closer to God. But if my whole focus is on other people or media or other sin, or w addictions or whatever right then those things have become god to me okay so here god is saying i don't want you to place anything else above me in your life okay and certainly in that day and age um the the israelites are going to be pretty much the only civilization um that were um monotheists okay so they're the only ones that didn't have any other god which is very important um because <sighs> all of the other uh people even though they didn't have the same gods necessarily but they believed in a pantheon of gods right so it was very easy for them to adopt a god from another civilization like for instance the difference between the roman empire and the greek empire like you have the greek mythology and you have the roman mythology they have different gods but they actually would refer to the same God with different names. Or if they happened to conquer some nation that had some other religion that worshipped some God, they would just add that God to their list of thousands of gods and no big deal, you know, because we already believe in thousands of gods. So, yeah, there's more of them. So from a religious perspective, there was so much plurality in the world. There was so much like you could literally accept anyone's polytheistic religion at that time, everyone in the world because it was so easy to just adopt their gods as your own, and even though maybe I didn't worship this specific god, but I have another god, kind of like also in Hinduism is like that. Like in Hinduism, people will choose like, like a god that's kind of like the, the family god, like the, the god that, that they focus on the most, right? And they might have like a little, uh, like, like little shrine to them in their house, okay? Um, like I had friends who were Hindu, and they had this in their house. Like they picked like a specific god, and that's the one they kind of focused on the most. So... If you believe in so many different gods, then there's not there's not really a lot of um, you know of, of delineation between right and wrong when it comes to polytheism. Really, everything goes okay. But when you talk about monotheism and not just monotheism, but specifically in Christianity and Judaism, God is extremely particular, right? So first of all, he says you have no other god. I'm the only god, right? Which is a radical concept at the time. The idea that there's only one. Well, what about the God of the moon and the God of the sun and the God of the rivers and the God of this and that? Well, he's saying, I'm the, I'm the God behind all of that. It's just me, right? And it's not like all the practices are defined, like how God wants to be worshipped is defined. What God wants you to offer him is defined. What he doesn't want you to offer him is defined. Everything is defined. That's why, like, in our church, like, the details matter. We're not a church where we just preach, you know, all that matters is that you love God and love people and that's it, right? Why? Because God himself has said that he cares about more than just that. Like, obviously, that's a very core message of Christianity, right? But that's not, that's not the only thing. You know, for instance, that's why we have sacraments, because God said to, right? That's why God tells us to worship him in a certain way, right? Certain things are considered an abomination to God. And certain things are not. So it's not up to each of us to decide how does God want to be worshipped. 
We worship him according to how he revealed to us that he wants to be worshipped. So this idea that they will have no other God except him was extremely radical. And no other group of people that lived at the time, as far as I know, had a similar belief. Everybody else was, for the most part, polytheistic. Okay. Then he goes a step beyond. He says what? You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Okay. This second commandment is saying what? What is the difference between this and the first commandment? Okay. He's saying don't mix pagan worship rituals with the worship rituals that I am telling you. When you will worship me, you will not worship me through an image, right? You're not going to, because, I mean, actually, what's exactly going to happen when Moses comes down from the mountain is what? Yeah, so what is the golden calf? What, is, what did they say about the golden calf? This is the God that got you out of Egypt. This is the God that, that led you out of Egypt, right? So they are saying the God who has been speaking to them, the God who led them out of Egypt, the God who was appearing in thunder and lightning on the mountain, is actually this calf, right? So it's like they are worshiping that God, but in the form of a calf. Because it is hard to believe in someone invisible. It is much easier to believe in someone you can see. And all the other nations, and this is why the people, we spoke about this at length when we were studying the book of Samuel. You know, whenever the, the other nations, they would go to war, what would they take with them to war? The idols, right? So they would take like their, their like uh, I think the, the, their god of war, or the Philistines' the god of war, I think his name was Dagon. So they would take this like idol of Dagon with them to the war so they felt like our God is with us. Our God is going to grant victory. Okay, But the Israelites were like, well, we don't have anything to bring. You know, We don't have anything that we can bring with us and make us feel like our God is with us in the, in the battle. God didn't want them to because he's spiritual. He's a spirit. You believe in him by faith and you believe that he is present even though you don't see him. right? But the people had trouble with this. This is why they would always take what? The Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was supposed to remain in the tabernacle. And if you were to transport it, it was because you were transporting the tabernacle, right? When here he's going to describe later on that, you know, as they are wandering in the wilderness, they're going to create a camp. And in the center of the camp will be the tabernacle. And inside the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle, there will be the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant could only be transported on poles by the Levites and only for the purpose of moving the tabernacle somewhere else. The Ark of the Covenant was not intended to be carted around on a cart going from battle to battle as like a lucky charm, right? But because the people didn't, like, they struggled with this idea of believing and worshiping a God who is spirit, right? That they wanted to have some physical object that could make them feel comfortable that this is our God is with us. Even if they didn't believe that the Ark of the Covenant was God, but they believe that that he, he he he's like it's a physical reminder of the presence of God with them, right? So here God is making it clear is I don't want you to do this. I don't want you to create any image and worship it as though this is him, as though this is God. Okay? Um, does this mean that we should not have any images then in the church? Yes, no. That is a question. I just asked it. So what is the what is the answer? Huh? No? Why? No as in we should or we shouldn't? We should. So how why how come should we? So yes, God incarnate, so so he is physically, we could see him, right? But what about even from before that? Like, would, like uh, we have like icons in the church. Um, we have pictures of the Lord Jesus. 
We don't worship them. We don't consider that an icon of the Lord is the Lord. Right? We don't worship the icon. The icon reminds us of God so that we can worship God. You know, even when going back to the tabernacle, when when God is telling Moses how to um, how to build the tabernacle, he says what the mercy seat, the mercy seat, which is these two cherubs, right, that are on the top of the Ark of the Covenant with their wings spread out. These are images, right? They're images of angels that God told him told them to make. Um, but we don't worship those images. Like, like they, the people didn't worship them. They, those were reminders of the presence of God. They were Because the mercy seat is the seat of God. Like when God would come upon the tabernacle and his presence would fill the tabernacle, that's where he would be, right? Yes. But then why does God allow, like, miracles to happen from, like, an icon of something or an icon of something to, like, you know, I don't know, I've heard stories about, like, some icons, like, you know, they start, like, I don't know, they, like, sometimes, like, oil comes out of them or something, like, holy oil or something. I don't know. So yeah. why does that happen? Like, why does God allow things to come from these images if we're not, like, I know we're not supposed to praise them, but, like, m that might be m misleading for some people. They might, like, think that's what they're supposed to be praying to, I guess. Yeah, Weird which question. is why, like, it's important to make the distinction and to be careful. I don't know, were you here when we talked about the holy objects, or did you come after that? So we were talking about how, just like um, just like the mountain, right? God said this mountain is holy, and you shouldn't come and touch it. Like, God imbued the mountain with a spiritual significance, like a spiritual power, even though the mountain is a physical object, right? So it's not just about an image or, like, an icon, like, Certain objects, God can make them to be holy. Like we talked about like the cross, right? And how we believe there is power in the cross and power in the sign of the cross. So, so you can have an object that God uses to express himself through it, right? So when, when, when God allows um, an icon to drip oil, right? This is communicating to us that there is truth and holiness coming from this like this whatever it happens to be like if it's an icon of the lord if it's an icon of a saint like saying the the church is you know it's like bringing validity and relevance and significance to the church and the faith of the people but the people are not worshiping that saint and i think it is important to especially for people who are not orthodox because many, many, one of the number one questions that I get from people who come to the church and they see that we have icons in the church and, and we sing praises or hymns to like the saints and St. Mary and all this is like, they can be offended. And they say like, like they believe that this is us worshiping the saints. But we're not worshiping the saints. We are praising them just like, you know, just like um, we praise one another, right? Like if there's someone I really admire, I praise them. And I, and I, and I maybe elevate that person and I say, you know what, you should be, like have a certain position or rank because you're so good and, and we all look up to that person and they're like a role model for us. Like all that just for human beings, right? So the only difference is that we are doing that but with people who are in heaven, right? So the icon is a reminder of the life of, you know, St. Anthony. That every time I see this icon of St. Anthony, I remember the story of St. Anthony, right? And it, yes, maybe it does help me to pray but I'm not praying, I'm not worshiping St. Anthony, Right? I'm still worshiping God, but it is a tool to help me to worship God. Sometimes we'll like pray to a saint, not praying to them, but we'll be like, oh, St. Mary, please help me in whatever, in like this test I have or whatever we have that we have a problem. Should we be saying St. Mary, please, like or like through the intercessions of St. Mary, please ask God to help me? Like, is it bad to say like St. Mary, please help me right now? I mean, it, it's like a shorthand. Okay. But it's, but it goes, again, it goes back to what do we mean? Because what we mean is the most important thing. And again, it's a source of confusion for some people, right? Um, because there are some that go too far with this. Like, you know, there's some that go too far and they begin to think that the saint is actually the one with the power, right? If we, if we read actually, like, there's a lot of ex examples in Scripture. Like, so, like, for instance, Job, okay? Um, and if you're interested more in this topic, there's a topic that, that I gave before about the intercession of the saints. It's on our YouTube channel, and it, it goes through all these kinds of examples, but this is just one. In the story of Job, 
right? He had these three friends, and these friends were kind of trying to comfort him, but they were very bad comforters, and they were not they were not telling him the truth or what was right. And at the end of the whole story, God rebukes them, okay? And he says what? He says, ask my servant Job to pray for you, and I will accept his prayer, right? So what is God saying? God is elevating Job as saying, Job's prayers are significant and special, right? More than yours. Yeah, that's what he's saying. He's saying, if you, if you ask me, it's not the same as when Job asks me, right? We, we've seen this also with Abraham, right? When, when uh, God told uh, Abimelech to go and ask Abraham to pray for him so that the plague would be removed from his people. Like, so God himself honors certain people. He honors them right and 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 because of their faith because of their because of the the place the position that god has chosen for them because god wants he wanted the world to see the righteousness of job he wanted the world to see the righteousness of abraham he wanted to point to them as being people that others should imitate emulate follow do what they're doing so he gave them this special kind of um you know kind, kind of position in that and that's what an intercessor is Right. So when we have intercessors, right, and we have these saints and we ask them, please help me with this and this. What are we really saying? We're saying, please pray because God hears your prayer. Like the verse that says what the, the righteous fervent prayer or the, the, the fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Right. Which means that when a righteous person prays to God, the God hears their prayer. And God, we see examples where he told us, ask this person to pray for you and I will hear their prayer. So if God himself is saying that, then all we are saying is the same, right? So when I say, St. Mary, please help me with this, it's not because I believe that St. Mary can choose according to her own will and according to her own power to, to help me in some way. It is everything is related to the Lord. Actually, all the significance of St. Mary is related to her relationship with the Lord. That's why, if you'll notice, you never see an icon of St. Mary by herself, right? It's always St. Mary with the Lord. Because St. Mary is like um, her, her special connection to the Lord is why we use her to be an intercessor. And that's the same with all the saints. I mean, all the saints have some kind of special relationship to the Lord. And so we ask them for, for that. So if you want to say intercede on my behalf, because that's the way we typically say it in the church, like in the church prayers, that's how we typically say it. Um, or if, you know, you're just, you're praying and it's a shorthand prayer, you don't have to be very formal like in your prayer and you want to say that, as long as you understand the theology behind it, right? It's not that we believe that the saints are somehow operating independently of God and that somehow, you know, if I ask this specific saint or this, that, you know, prayer in itself, the topic of it is a very big topic. And even when we talk about praying for one another on earth, you know, like, you know, like, how do we understand it? Like, like, let's say I, I ask God to fix a problem that I have, okay? And then I go to Fedi and say, Fedi, please pray for me that God fix this problem that I have. Do I have a way to measure what just happened? Like, like what, what probability is the problem going to be solved more now that I ask someone else to pray for me? And how many people, if I ask to pray, like, we can't approach it, like, in a scientific way like that, right? All we know is that God told us to ask for the prayers of others and to ask for the prayers of the saints, and so that's what we do. What does that translate into, and would God have done it anyway? Or, or, or I don't know, but we'll, we'll never know that, right? All we're doing is God asked us to ask for the prayer of others, so we're doing it, okay? <coughs> you shall not bow down to them, so this is talking about the idols and the, the images, right? The images that we're making. You shall not bow down to them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. So what do you think of that? The part that says what? I am jealous, God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me.
Mm-hmm. So how do we understand it? I think it's because it's like natural for kids when they see like when their parents are sinners and are living away from God that they would learn that from them and like all, all the next generations. And so eventually like when God punishes, he punished the kids too because they have learned from their parents. Very good. Right. This is talking about like a learned behavior. Right. Not a punishment of innocent people. Okay, I'm going to read in Ezekiel 18, which is what you were referring to, okay? In Ezekiel 18, verse 4, it says, Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father, as well as the soul of the Son, is mine. The soul who sins shall die. Right? The soul, of the, the, the one who sins is the one who shall die. So if, because this is what happens, right? Like if you have someone who is living wickedly, the probability that their children will be wicked is high. And the probability that their children are wicked is high, and so on. It doesn't have to be, right? We have people who are like very righteous kings, for instance, whose fathers were very wicked, and we had the reverse. Um, but but to, to, you know, very often, this is what happens. So what God is saying here is that the, 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 the punishment Right, that God is giving to one generation is going to continue because all those subsequent generations are going to continue in the same sin as their ancestors. Okay, so also in Ezekiel 18, this is what it says it says, um, He's speaking now about a righteous man. Okay, so he says, If he, the righteous man, begets a son who is a robber or a shedder of blood. Who does, not who does not do any of these things, shall he then live? He shall not live. If he has done any of these abominations, he shall surely die. His blood shall be upon him. So here's an example where if you have a person whose descendant is evil, the man is good, but he has a descendant who is evil, he's saying, is he going to live and be exempted from punishment simply because his ancestor is good? No. Okay. Then, also in Ezekiel 18, he gives the, the, the reverse example, okay? He says, if, however, he begets a son who sees all the sins which his father has done and considers but does not do likewise but has executed my judgments and walked in my statutes, he shall not die for the iniquity of his father, he shall surely live, right? So each person is being judged according to their own sins. And so in the conclusion, this is Ezekiel 18.20, he says, The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not bear the guilt of the father, nor the father bear the guilt of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. Okay? So here when the Lord is saying that he is visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, it is the interpretation that I was saying at the beginning. Okay? This is, this is because it's very likely that the children will continue to, to live in sin as their fathers, but if they did not, then they would not be punished for that. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. This is the third commandment. Okay, The name of the Lord is a holy name. Right, The name of the Lord is a holy name. Whenever we use the name of the Lord, it should be in the context of describing God as he is and, 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 and really attributing something to him and, and speaking about him with respect and with holiness and with reverence. Okay? In Luke 1, 49, it says, For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and, his, and holy is his name. Right? Even the, his name is holy. So in order for us to... Um, to speak the right way about God. We should not speak his name loosely or treat it like any common name. That's why, for instance, in the Egyptian culture, we don't name anyone Jesus. We don't, we don't name people that name, right? Because no one can live up to the name of Jesus, okay? I know in other cultures, they name their kids Jesus as like a kind of like, like it's an honor to God, like to say, I want to name my child after God. Um, but in, 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 in the Egyptian culture, the reason they don't do that is because we don't want to be using that name in a, in a loose way, 
right? Just referring to, you know, calling, like, like imagine you're a parent and you're scolding your son Jesus, you know, and you're, 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 you're talking to him like that. Like, you know, like it, it just brings to mind um, when you hear the name Jesus, it brings to mind the name of the Lord Jesus. Um, so we should also not use his name like people that say like, oh, my God, and, and, and obviously like include cursing like with the name of Jesus in it because all those things take away from the holiness of the name of God, right? It, sa- it says what his name is above any other name. So if his name is above any other name, I have to be very careful with the way I speak about him, right? Not speak about his name in an idle way, in a loose way, in, a, in an unbecoming way. Even if it's not like a curse against God, just to speak his name commonly, right? We speak about him, and that's why in the church we tend to even give a title to his name. We say the Lord Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We typically don't even just say Jesus by itself, I'm not trying to say that it's wrong, but we, we for like extra reverence to the name of the Lord, we give him a title, right? Um, also, we should not swear falsely by his name. In Deuteronomy 28, it says, If you do not carefully observe all the words of this law that are written in this book, that you may fear this glorious and awesome name, the Lord your God. Like his name is glorious and awesome. Not just God is glorious and awesome, the name of God is glorious and awesome. So we, so, so we don't take the name of the Lord God in vain because, we, because when we do so, we minimize God himself, right? We, we minimize God when we speak about his name flippantly, when we speak about his name kind of casually in a careless way, okay? This is a good stopping point here. Next time, God willing, we can continue with the fourth commandment. Actually, no, we'll do it now because I've already discussed the fourth commandment. It says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy six days you shall labor and do all your work but the seventh day is the sabbath of the lord your god in it you shall do no work you nor your son nor your daughter nor your male servant nor your female servant nor your cattle nor your strangers who is within your gates for in the six days the lord made the heavens and the earth the sea and all that is in them and rested the seventh day therefore the lord blessed the sabbath day and hallowed it okay um, we spoke earlier of when the Lord instituted the Sabbath about the Sabbath at the time. I just want to read this one quote from St. Clement of Alexandria, which says what? He gave us the seventh day to rest because our body needs it. As to God, he does not get tired and never feels pain or need. We keep the spiritual Sabbath until the Savior comes, as in it we had rest from sin. And this spiritual Sabbath for us in the New Testament is the, is the Lord's Day, which is Sunday, and it's Sunday because we celebrate it as a commemoration of the resurrection where the Lord gave us the eternal rest and to allow us to dwell with him um, in paradise uh, on that day. Did you have a question? I had a comment on yeah. the name commandment. Um, so there was a sermon a priest gave, and the whole sermon was on the name of God. And he said that in the Orthodox Church, you don't start a prayer until you say in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so he said, if you're not about to stand in prayer and worship and reverence to God, then you shouldn't say his name. Because once you say his name, you are in his presence. Very good. Thank you. Any other comments or questions? Uh, I'm wondering, can I say one thing about the Ten Commandments? So, um, so, 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 and by comparing the new covenant to the old covenant, I mean, in the old covenant, I mean, nobody, nobody didn't need God at all, period. But in the new covenant, now we, now we have the grace of God that will help us with the, with, with, with any sin that we're struggling with. Sorry, you said in the old covenant we didn't have the grace of God, but in the new covenant. So, so, so in other words, I'm saying that in the old covenant, because there was no grace, nobody, nobody, nobody needed God at all. But in, in the new covenant, now we have now we have the grace of God. That well, now now in 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 the new covenant, we have the grace of God that will help us, especially. When we're struggling with any sin. So I wouldn't say in the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, we didn't need God. We needed Him, of course, just the same. 
But you're right. The grace of God was not yet offered to the world in the way that it was in the New Testament. And that is why the a lot of the commands, a lot of the way that the God dealt with the people was different um, in the Old Testament and the expectations of God upon the people was different in the Old Testament and what God expected the people to know and how to behave was different in the Old Testament than in the New Testament. Okay, thank you. Let's pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. We thank you, O Lord, for this day. We thank you, O God, for all the blessings that you have given us, that all the opportunities you allow us to gather together in your church and to study your word. We ask, O God, that you take away from us, O Lord, all desire of sin and wickedness and help us to come to you, O Lord, with a spirit of repentance, desiring, O God, that you would accept us, you would forgive our sins, and you would have mercy on our weakness. We thank you, O Lord, for allowing us to study your commandments. Help us, O God, to live these commandments in our lives and not just to memorize them in our minds, but to put them into our hearts, as you have said, and to live them, O Lord, and have a desire to please you, O Lord, at all times. Through the prayers of St. Mary, Archangel Michael, St. Paul, St. Mark, and all your saints, hear us as we pray thankfully, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. The love of God the Father, the grace of the only begotten Son, our Lord God and Savior Jesus Christ and the communion and the gift of the Holy Spirit be with